Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast that offers a fresh take on the controversies thrown up by some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which is actually so long ago now that Cliff Richard was Britain's Eurovision hopeful. And that's also so long ago that I don't even know who that is. <laughs> that just could be part of my astonishingly terrible knowledge of pop culture, which obviously makes me perfectly placed to <laughs> discuss Eurovision. So Tom, why did we decide to do Eurovision this week? Well, I should preface everything I'm about to say with the fact that I have not had much chance except to throw myself into Eurovision over the past few years because my partner, Joe, uh, from whom I have learned a great deal about the contest, is obsessed with it. And so we've been listening to Eurovision playlists since about February, like the moment that the first songs come out, it's become the backdrop in the car. Um, this has nonetheless been one of the most successful Eurovisions ever. So even though the contest as a whole is this amazing phenomenon and we might talk about the history of it, um, I think this year has been particularly interesting and interesting not least because of the way that it's resonated with British audiences. I think it got something like 10.8 million viewers, which is one of the highest uh, viewing figures Eurovisions had in recent years. And the big story, of course, is that Britain unbelievably won the jury vote. So after years and years and years of saying that, you know, the Europeans were never going to vote for us, they hated us, uh, that we were doomed in Eurovision, lots of angry Eurosceptics saying, why are we putting money in? We should just get out of it. Guess what? This year we came first in the jury vote. We came fifth on the public vote. It was an amazing turnaround of fortune. So I think it, it means something this year for Britain. But it also, as ever, provides an insight into some of these bigger questions about what is European identity uh, what can we say about the different kind of political styles of different European nations? Um, and also just the way that this has become this huge kind of slightly shambolic, but also slightly joyful kind of European party. Um, Zilba, was this your first Eurovision that you've watched uh, for a while? Because no. we should say we watched this together. Well, we watched we watched this one together. Um, I have seen I have seen them over the years because uh, some other friends are are keen. Um, I also enjoy it as a as a as a spectacle of European kitsch. But Tom, as the historian of greater um, gravitas when it comes to these <laughs> matters than me, as well as experience, why is you know is it fair to say Eurovision is really European when the likes of Israel um, and Azerbaijan and, and, and places like that are actually not just peripheral, but central to it. Um, what, what, what do you think, what, why, what does Euro actually mean in the context of Eurovision, do you think? And while you're answering, you should- <laughs> Supplementary question. Well, you should t share with everyone what it's like to actually go to Eurovision, which you've also done. And that, and, you know, and that's, a, you know, that's, that's a European experience or is it? So, yeah, because the idea that gravitas is the quality that you need to talk about Eurovision is an interesting one. And um, what does it say about uh, European? Well, 1956, of course, is the origin of the Eurovision Song Contest, which is also the year um, that the Treaty of Rome is signed. So actually Eurovision is born with the idea of uh, the European Economic Community 
um, and it's the origins of the European Union. At the beginning, it only had seven members. You're quite right, or seven participants, you're quite right to say that it now has a much, much kind of broader uh, spectrum, uh, including bits of Central Asia, including Australia, including Israel. Since 1973, actually, Israel has been involved in the contest. Um, one of the conditions for taking part is that you have to participate in the European Broadcasting Union. So as long as you operate within something called the EBU, then you are eligible for taking part in Eurovision. And it's actually striking that some countries have taken part for a bit and then withdrawn. So actually, the, the who exactly is taking part in any year fluctuates. There were several years when Italy didn't take part. Um, there's been uh, various years where Turkey has not taken part. So, you know, the, the, the kind of the makeup of the contest is always kind of shifted, which is partly what's kind of interesting about it. Um, in terms of what it's like uh, actually attending, I was there in Portuguese Eurovision, which I think is 2019, I could be wrong. Um, and what I would say is it was joyous. I mean, I was a skeptic before I went, uh, but it does just feel like the huge, incredibly convivial, uh, but also, as I say, slightly random street party. Um, the thing that's really striking is just how gay Eurovision has become. Um, and I wonder, like, when did that happen? How did that happen? How is that related to the kitschness? But certainly you would look around the stadium and realise that sort of like 60% or 70% of the most devoted fans are clearly all gay men. Like, what is it about Eurovision uh, that might kind of you know, be particularly appealing to homosexuals? Well, you might be a much better place to answer that than me. I would like your speculations on it, Zoe. When did Eurovision go gay as a historian well, of contemporary culture and why did it go gay? Well, I think I think the gay man asking the straight woman who's <laughs> terrible at pop culture history why and when Eurovision went gay is <laughs> a little unfair. But um, when did Eurovision go gay? Um, I mean, I would imagine it, it was when gay identity began to be sure of itself, a sort of mainstreaming of certain signifiers of, of gay life, which presumably would have been in the 70s and 80s. So after homosexuality have any kind of laws against it. So all kinds of things went gay in that period. Mm. It'd be interesting to compare underground homosexual cultures, say in Soho uh, in the late 19th century. And, and you know, were, were there sort of spectacles that, that are similar? And then one would tend to associate those more with women and femininity. And maybe that's the interesting switch that, is, you know, frocks and singing and a, and a contest like that might seem more coded feminine. And then, of course, in the 70s and 80s, it explodes as a gay male thing. I, I think that that it's it's interesting as to how these things become so associated with these demographics. There is something kitsch about it. Is there a way of pinning down what its kind of aesthetic register is both you know visually aesthetically but also in terms of its its sound and the kinds of acts that it attracts it, you know is it is it all playful is there a serious side to it how would you describe what it's doing artistically if anything <laughs> i like the fact zoe that your answer makes me think that there is a phd in this subject like when eurovision went gay um, <laughs> well, just mean, as a just as a foot as a footnote to that i think you're dead right to say that there's something about big shifts happening in the 70s and some people have said that it's partly to do with when they allow disco to appear in the, in the Eurovision Song Contest. And it's worth remi remembering that at the beginning, actually, the repertoire was actually much more classical in lots of ways. It was a it was a much more kind of instrumental contest. It got much dancier in the 70s. And then some people have said it's actually the 90s. And indeed, Israel's famous entry, Dana International, Zoe, 
the transgender performance of Dana International was a turning point for the visibility of kind of queer communities at Eurovision. And since then, that's a theme that's actually been reinforced, you know, almost in, in every contest. Um, most famously, of course, with Conchita Wurst, the mm. kind of uh, the, the great bearded lady of, uh, of, Aust of Austria and um, winning a few years ago. Um, in terms of what's the aesthetic mode, uh, clearly what's lovely about Eurovision or what I enjoy about it is it's a smorgasbord of different musical styles. So obviously at the moment there is a lot of pop around. Um, it's very interesting to see how European acts are modelling themselves, you know, very heavily on leading British or American acts. And so this year, as ever, you watch and you think, oh, so-and-so reminds me of a version of Beyonce. Uh, or so-and-so reminds me of a version of, um, you know, Bruno Mars or whatever. So you, you see this question of like emulation and what's derivative, but you also see things that are completely unique and I think kind of wonderfully bonkers that you don't otherwise see in the charts. Um, this year, you know, two groups that did exceptionally well in the public vote. Um, one country that did really well is uh, Moldova with the song about taking a train journey from Chisinau to Bucharest. Uh, played on like funny fiddle instruments with guys wearing hoodies. It's like some sort of folk jamboree. And then there was the completely mad Serbian entry that I thought was kind of brilliant, but was about private health insurance with a woman doing it as a kind of contemporary art piece, like with a sort of techno quasi orthodox chanting thing going on in the background, completely mad, the kind of stuff you'd never otherwise hear on the radio. Um, and so I think Eurovision is a mix of what seem like quite mainstream commercial tunes, but intermixed with sort of different ethnic folk kind of national styles, and then some stuff that is just deliberately and gleefully daft. I think, you know, the national styles thing is interesting because another thing they're trying to do is, well, some countries, anyway, certainly the Western European countries, they're not exclusively are trying to show the ethnic diversity of their nation. For instance, Germany this year. Mm, um, yeah. Someone with an American accent who was certainly a minority, uh, at least, you know, he, he was definitely a racial minority. Um, and so, you know, I think there is some playing with that where, when you think you're going to get a super kind of white Aryan type sent out of the European heartlands, they sometimes give you something different. And But actually, I think that that side of it perhaps doesn't come out as much as you might imagine, because basically it is pretty damn white when you're getting the Iceland's and the Norway's and the Sweden's and the French, you know, it, there, there's, it is- Sweden, Sweden had a black entry a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it, then like the Mamas was the big black Swedish lady group that were the performed okay. last year. So you are right to say that it plays around with preconceptions. It does and I think a lot of Northern European countries are definitely keen to play around with yes. I But I think that's interesting. I, I think this year I, I probably was expecting more of that given the heightened state of discourse around race and diversity. So I think I think that is something that's that's just worth flagging as, as you know, it's worth being attentive to how these countries want to send out, you know, their their sort of liberated or enlightened views of diversity and how, how that manifests or doesn't. Um, I, I think what you said about the, the, the acts that are about the train journey or the health insurance, and let's not forget the one about bananas, wolves, and grandmothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Norway this year, subwoofer. Yeah. So there, to me, there's a, a very funny, uh, you're speaking of perhaps not aesthetic mode, but content, like <laughs> theme, was quite absurdist and quite post-sexual. Yeah. There's a sense that this year nobody really wanted the the crooning, nobody wanted the, 
Love Lorne. I mean, maybe that's not, I, I can't actually remember if any of those Love Lorne singing songs did well, but it was striking how incredibly good and popular these, these like just pure absurdist ones were. And I suppose Israel's win um, two years ago uh, was an example of that as well. Um, so yeah. I, that's that's one of the most interesting things about Eurovision is the way it, it, it either completely gets away from sex or makes fun of it, like the Spanish entry, which was so sexual that we actually all decided it was it was kind of poking fun at it. Um, so uh, it was it was pa it was parody sexuality this year. I mean, she she really stood out. I mean, to win Eurovision, you need to be doing a song that is memorable. I mean, one of the obviously the the kind of great unknowns with Eurovision is what the running order is going to be um, and lots of good songs get lost because there is this slightly relentless sequence of numbers um, so you get sort of 25 songs in a row and if you're going to have 25 songs in a row the danger is that you have another song that's a bit like one that you heard earlier and actually as a result it doesn't it doesn't stick and um, Spain did really well this year Hanel obviously spelt Chanel but it's Spain so it's Hanel uh, did really well this year um, with a song that was a banger because she was the only quote unquote sexy lady in the contest this year. And as a result, she was the one with this amazing kind of choreography and so on that, that stuck in the public imagination. She had a kind of authenticity. So to go back to what you were saying about Germany, I think one of the reasons that the Germans came bottom this year, I mean, they, they did as badly, I think, as we did last year. They got double zero, double, you know, non-point. Um, one of the reasons the Germans did so badly is that none of the things about it felt authentic. Like it felt like they'd almost rented a kind of hip hop artist from the United States. You know, didn't really say anything about Germany, didn't really say anything about the current moment. Spain, yeah, okay, she had the she had some of the moves of Beyonce, but this was absolutely a kind of Latin number. And she even had this like lovely little like matadors jacket, this little bolero jacket that she was sort of strutting around in. So people still felt like, oh yeah, this is Spain, even in a in a sort of souped up 21st century way, I think people still like a national brand. Why do you think the, the, the I'm really interested in what you were saying about gender Zoe, why do you think that some of the like male crooners did so badly this year? Or, or well, why is, and what's also going on with this kind of like, I don't know, almost parody version of sexuality? Well, I I was just gonna also bring up masculinity because we, we've neglected to say one of the pretty major aspects of this, what made this uh, Eurovision distinct. It wasn't just Britain coming second, which is actually <laughs> an embarrassing case of, you know, in, like, national sort of solipsism there, but rather Ukraine winning uh, because there's a war basically in Europe this year. Um, I think <laughs> Thanks for reminding me, Zoe. Like, Tom, there's a war on. Stop there's being war and, and although Britain came second with a TikTok buffoon, let's not forget the real reason that Eurovision this year was, was highly politicized and that Britain, you know, Britain's success was, um, we think, to do with the fact that Britain's been the staunchest ally mm. of Ukraine. So I think that's the moment it becomes a very interesting vehicle for actual real politics as well. Masculinity ties into that. In a year of war, when we know that um, men are fighting and so on uh, in, in Ukraine and being drafted uh, and, and military masculinity has kind of returned to, to, to the European consciousness. Um, uh, maybe the, in, the, in that context, nobody wants to hear the, the Australian man crooning about his self about his emotional I don't know what what was the Australian I'm not the same. 
the yeah. uh, <laughs> the guy. I mean, to be but fair, at least he was, at least he was a flamboyant homosexual who wore a kind of like chainmail mask. At least there right. was some spectacle there. Nobody wants that. Um, people are dying. So I think I think the Ukrainian win was an interesting mix because it was a bit it was emotional, but it was sort of you know aligned to this this national struggle. So I think this yeah I think this year um, masculinity is now being potentially uh, nudged into a direction that does not necessarily feel like in the mood for self indulgence, which is the direction it's been going in. Uh, generally speaking, and also with, you know, some of the most famous acts in the world, Harry Styles. I mean, there, there's mm. the men, masculine, generally pop stars, male pop stars are going in the direction of being either androgynous or oversensitive or feminine-ish, you know, styled in a feminine way. And, and that has always driven women crazy. So that's a, that's a popular a motif. But of course, the, the main audience for Eurovision are not straight women or teeny boppers. Uh, but I do wonder, Tom, um, as a gay man, uh, more, more firsthand about codes of masculinity, how a militaristic masculinity that might now be a sort of her heroic militaristic masculinity that may now be associated with Ukraine, how does that sit with a largely gay uh, male audience? I mean, apparently it sits well, but, but what are your thoughts on that? I, th I think it's as well. I think the thing you say about the the kind of impatience that we have for male crooning self-pity is spot on. Um, and if you look at the final running order, even some of the men who sang well, so I thought, you know, as Vajan, very good vocal performance, ended up being mid-table because nobody wants a pretty boy moaning about his breakup. Um, Switzerland, a song called literally Boys Don't Cry, oh. did okay with the jury, got a zero from the public. I do think there's a kind of there is a sort of there's a there's an intolerance for some of that um, nonsense now. Um, whereas Ukrainians singing about their mother, I mean that's the thing. Yes, uh, it might seem that this military masculinity is not going to cut through, but Ukraine did have all the elements of a of a worthy winner. If for one thing it was a spectacle, like actually the choreography was kind of fun, and that includes that kind of weird sort of pagan breakdancing character that was almost like a version of a, of a kind of racial difference in the way that it was done. There was this kind of interesting guy sort of swaddled in uh, sort of speckled stuff that you couldn't work out whether it was a, uh, was a black dancer or was like a member of the troupe. But they certainly signaled their openness to uh, black culture. Uh, obviously they're doing a kind of hip hop kind of uh, mashup kind of thing. So they were a very clever mix of something that's traditional and folk and kind of ethnic and authentic, but with this sort of 21st century beats and this interesting kind of modern hip hop. And in a way kind of, you know, nationalisms, you know, since the, since the beginning really of musical tech musical history have played around with that idea of being both kind of um, modernistic and also kind of, you know, folkloric and, and traditional at the same time. And this was a good version of that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's also a song of men singing about their mum. Uh, you know, Stephania is a mother figure, which maybe says something to uh, the gay audience. And, but you also can't say enough about the fact that this was just a moral avalanche from the viewing population. Um, it's been calculated that something like 98% of all of the available vote that could have been given was given to Ukraine. Um, you know, depending on some ways how you calculate that, but it was it was absolutely overwhelming that in most countries their dues point in terms of the public vote went to Ukraine, and so as a symbol of solidarity, I think it was really it was kind of really powerful. 
has you has sorry has Eurovision ever come close to jingoism? You know, from any of its entrants. So I think you know the continent has a bit of a problem with <laughs> like Poland, Germany, Austria. So, I mean, they're all they all have hideous histories of you know nationalism run rampant and actually fairly recent histories of, of, of you know, leaders that are increasingly popular that are playing on those um, sort of sensibilities and fears. Has Eurovision, I mean, I'm asking you this just because you have had now more exposure than me. Uh, has Eurovision ever got close to that kind of scary European ethno-nationalism, do you think? Zoe, it almost sounds like you're, you're requesting, you say, I've got closer to it than you. Maybe that will change. Maybe you should come and a future year. I think you find it completely fascinating, oh, kind of sociologically and anthropologically. I think you'd be really into it. Um, yeah, I'll only go if it's in Azerbaijan, but yes. What, what happens if it's in Salford next year, which also might happen, of course, because Zelensky on the back of the Ukrainian victory said, you know, we're going to hold it in Mariupol. I mean, are they going to hold it in Mariupol next summer? Well, if I mean, it's or next Salford, spring, I mean, I don't know. I'm probably going to have to say no, but Hull, I would consider. <laughs> Yeah, Hull, yes, Salford, yes, absolutely. Um, in terms of your thing about ethno-nationalism, it's interesting that this, the other big, obviously, political landmark this year was it's the very first time that a country has been formally excluded, that the kind of, that the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, decided to actually uh, make Russia withdraw, because the contest from its origin was meant to be thoroughly non-political, like they haven't wanted to kind of issue those sorts of uh, requirements before and actually it still took them three days to decide that they should actually force the Russians to kind of feel that they should ban Russia and um, because it was clear that other acts were going to pull out if the Russians did perform and um, the closest we've come interestingly is another clash between uh, Russia and Ukraine and um, now Zoe do you remember watching the 2016 contest um I... like gosh who knows when when Ukraine won the last time that Ukraine won I'm not going to be able to pull that out of the soup that is my brain. <laughs> so the Ukrainians in 2016 won with a song called 1944, sung by Yamala, uh, that was about the Crimean Tatars. Okay. And so it was about ethnic cleansing in the, in the Soviet Union under Stalin. Um, very, very politically kind of loaded song. Uh, in 2017, so the Ukrainians win, they're hosting it. Um, the Russian act that was going to perform, and um, they discovered that that Russian act had actually performed in Crimea in 2015. So this is after Putin's annexation of the Crimea. This Russian act had performed there. As a result, seemed to have legitimized the Russian annexation, um, and so the you know the act wasn't allowed to perform in Ukraine. And as a result, kind of Russia didn't take part in 2017. So in a way. If we'd been watching our Eurovision closely, we could have seen the 2022 conflict was already on the cards. Like, you know, probably the same with sporting contests or kind of musical contests. Yeah. But there is something about how these kind of culture wars, these kind of these what might seem like sideshows actually do tell you about real spots of kind of simmering uh, tension or real places of kind of simmering um, rivalry. And um, Zoe, can I just ask you to uh, explain your thoughts on the man that you quite unkindly called the TikTok buffoon, Sam Ryder. Um, do, you, do you really think that Britain did not deserve the plaudits that it got this year? I grant that when it comes to falsetto or whatever it was he was doing, he's probably quite good at it. I also just hate his look. Um, sort of scary, sort of surfer man slash murderer. Is, is, is Aryan Jesus. 
Harry, yeah. yeah, Jesus, like long blonde hair, beard singing at the top of his lungs, sort of too much man and then too much high voice. So the, the combination just does, does not work for me on quite a visceral level. Uh, I, frankly, I've always thought the other British acts have been fine. So I don't understand why they came last and he came so high. Uh, I, I do think, however, his rise to prominence is interesting um, in the sense that he wasn't some sort of establishment act with the backing of like, record labels but rather had seems to have hit a nerve in that kind of insane way that's impossible to predict that people will hit a nerve on TikTok which is probably mm. the world's silliest platform where people just basically sing other people like it's basically a karaoke machine um and and so I watched one of his videos on there and it was it was just as ghastly as his Eurovision <laughs> one did you watch him doing Britney Spears though did you see the video that that Staved him from a life of being a kind of laborer in Essex to now being a kind of pop star. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's interesting in itself. Uh, but talk about cultural appropriation. I mean, sexual appropriation, back off. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think that was a, just a weird one. Uh, and obviously I'm out of touch once again with what people like, because I, I found him sort of terrible. I, I found him um, pretty re revolting. Uh, I, I did I did appreciate the, the, the sort of stylish cage he seemed to be dancing and singing mm. in. Uh, I, the other thing about Eurovision that's hilarious is the sort of fact that there are loud instruments on the stage but not to play them. So there he had the <laughs> guitar that he was sort of fingering every now and then but, but obviously no sound was coming out of it to allow him to feel like a real crooner rocker or a country singer. I don't even know what genre it was. Um, but I mean, did you feel more sympathetic towards um, towards him, Tom, the, the British entry? Would, would an American have sent someone like that? Well, I, I do feel sympathetic to him. I mean, I didn't think the song was the was the best song. You know, we, strangely, I really liked France this year, who actually sang in Breton, which is another kind of interesting way of thinking about diversity, is that some nations actually, you know, thinking about their own kind of internal diversity. Um, but France came, you know, second to bottom. So what do I know? Um, I think I did, I did respond more warmly to him partly just as a performer, like as a showman. And I think one of the other ways that you win Eurovision, yes, you need a good song, but you also need to put on a show. Um, and so Sweden, I think, had a better song this year, but it was a kind of dreary performance. You know, she, if you remember, she was the, the uh, Cornelia was the very, or Cordelia, I should say, was the very attractive singer who was in front of a green disc. She was singing about a breakup, but in front of the stage, she was basically, she was great, but it was a green disc. And I do think because Eurovision is so flamboyant, I think people want something memorable. And that does mean like a certain like vocal pyrotechnics, but it also means give us some staging and you know, give us something, give us something kind of visually compelling as well. So I think he's a great showman. And I think a lot of people in Europe love Freddie Mercury and they love Queen. And he was sort of tapping into that heritage a little bit. I think which brings us to our last point about showmanship. And this is actually a very hilarious question to ask in relation to Eurovision. Tom, why the hype? <laughs> So uh, I think the thing I'm going to say about why the hype is, I do think it's, it is a kind of cultural spectacle, the like of which we don't otherwise have because of the way that it combined this year, particularly uh, I, what I thought was quite moving moral sentiment, a kind of sense of European solidarity with the completely absurd. I mean, the useless prattle of the hosts. I mean, I thought Mika was good at half time, but in general, there's a kind of cringy quality of Eurovision that's also part of the pleasure of it. Like it's actually the fact that it is a bit embarrassing at moments that makes it so kind of compelling. And um, I think the other reason for the hype this year is it's really interesting watching it now in the context of a sort of post-Brexit Britain 
where I think for a lot of Remainers, Eurovision has got real cultural importance still. It's a place where they get to feel connected still to the continent. But I think we've also been in a, for a long time thinking that Eurovision was was just a bit beneath us, you know, and that's why we sent acts that we would never really enter into our own charts. You know, a lot of the acts that we've sent in recent years would never get into the British, you know, top 40. Um, whereas we've now started to take it seriously. And as a result, we are being taken seriously. Um, and it's going to be interesting watching it in future years, whether Eurovision is going to go from being something that we just all think of as, as a bit of nonsense that we can laugh at with Terry Wogan and Graham Norton, or whether suddenly we're going to get competitive. And if we get competitive, the whole viewing experience around this thing um, is going to change. So I think why the hype is because maybe our relationship with Eurovision is about to go through a bigger transition. Zoe, why the hype? Well, I think the hype is because it's a fun excuse to get together with your friends and watch something on TV and drink and eat. Uh, and I think I think it's just you say Eurovision, and next thing you know, there's there's you know people coming around to watch, and it's a bit like the you know a royal wedding, and that's fun. It's social. I, I mean, that's only additional thing I would say to what you've said. Um, I, I've just thought maybe we should say that it's it's the UEFA Cup for women and gays. It's, it's like probably straight men get their sort of sense of European spectacle and kind of solidarity through sport we have to find it elsewhere yes i think so i mean i do know some straight men who who are into it but but basically i think that's right i think just in closing it's it's also interesting just to think about eurovision's chops as a genuinely geopolitical mm. force and I, I kind of wonder if pushed to, to to extremes you know could eurovision change the outcome of the war or could 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 eurovision change any outcomes um I, I don't know. I think that's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, There's a famous story that the Portuguese revolution in the 1970s was started by a Eurovision song, Zoe. So it has earth-shaking consequences. earth-shaking potential. Well, something to consider more anon. Uh, join us next time for a consideration of Kendrick Lamar's new album, which is called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. A charming, concise name. Don't let that put you off. Oh,